we are on. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Data-Driven Podcast, sponsored by Expresso.ai. Expresso is a lifecycle management platform for artificial intelligence and machine learning applications. It is built on an integrated set of frameworks and accelerators to help data scientists build cognitive solutions quickly and easily. On today's show, we are joined by Tanya Magash, the Chief Data and Analytics Officer at Democrats. I feel like that whole sentence was just like a minefield of mispronunciations for me. Tanya, how are you doing today? I am doing fabulous. Thank you. How about you? I'm doing well. Did I, was I close even? I think that was as perfect as it can get. So I'm grateful. <laughs> Thank you. No corrections. No corrections. Awesome. I want to get a little bit of your background for context, and then we can jump into the main topics if that's okay. Absolutely. So um, academically slash professionally, um, most of my background was actually in finance. Okay. I started my career at Lehman Brothers in September of 2008, luckily for me. You started at Lehman Brothers in 2008. When you got to Lehman Brothers in SEP of 2008, did you get a sense of what was happening? Like, did you know? Absolutely not. And I would claim that no one around me did either. Oh so God. let's just say that things unfolded very quickly and, and unexpectedly, which was quite the experience for a first job out of college for a 22-year-old. I was going to say, wow, what was that environment like? Do you remember? Oh, absolutely. I remember calling my parents and crying and they were just like, well, why did you decide to join this company? It's your own fault. You should have known better. And I'm like, mom and dad, the whole world didn't know any better. How did you expect me to know any better? There was definitely a lot of chaos. But to be honest, it all ended up well for me because having such an extreme experience so early on really helps shape you in your career. And I was lucky enough to actually stay on with Barclays once they had purchased several parts of the Lehman Brothers business. And because I was one of the only ones that transitioned and stuck around, I moved up very quickly. So um, I became AVP within two years of my career. And then I was able to use that as a platform to go back to business school very early on in my life, which I think accelerated my path even more so. Good for you. Where are you from originally? So I was actually born and raised in Sarajevo, Bosnia. Wow. And during the war, I actually grew up as refugee in Austria and Germany. And then I actually ended up in the U.S. for college specifically and just stuck around for 15 years on and off. So I've always felt like that's an amazing story. And I've always felt like I've lived like the easiest possible life. I was explaining to somebody a couple of weeks ago that you know, I was born in July of 1965, so there was no way I was going to go to the Vietnam War. Even my dad was a little bit too old to get drafted. Do you know what I mean? I feel like I was born into relative ease. And when, you know, I've heard the stories, I saw on the news, the Bosnian stuff. And when I think about, you know, being a refugee, we talked offline about me spending a night in jail, right? And it was scary. Do you have memories of that as well? I absolutely do. But I, again, think I was quite fortunate because we, my family and I, we were able to actually leave Bosnia pretty early on okay. at the onset of war. And we were um, part of the refugee program in, in Germany, like I mentioned. And a lot of my friends weren't that fortunate. And they actually spent those four years under a siege. And that was um, obviously much more traumatizing. 
So like I said, I actually feel quite lucky in terms of my experience with that. Good for you. What was it like living in Manhattan? It was actually quite intense, and I'm sure you can imagine Manhattan being quite intense, especially working in finance. But to be honest, I think it was the optimal place for me to spend those formative years in my career and my education. So I actually went to college in New York and then uh, worked on Wall Street, like I mentioned, a couple of years and then joined an insurer afterwards. And to be honest, it was just such a wealth of experience that really shaped me and gave me uh, an, an immense skill set that now I feel like I can make it anywhere. I'm very grateful that I spend my 20s um, in, in New York City. Yeah, do you feel like you look back and just think, I cannot believe all of these sort of individual and then cumulative experiences that I've had over time? Absolutely. I definitely have quite the wealth of different experiences. And, you know, you know I've always been like that. Um, I always appreciate a new experience, a new learning. So um, I've moved around a lot in my career. I've been in a lot of different industries. I've met a lot of people. I, I read a lot. I, I really like having that different stimuli because I believe that it really helps me learn and grow on a continuous basis. I could not agree with you more. Can you tell me how you got involved in this new field of data, data analytics? Like, how did that happen? Was it something you actively pursued or did it just happen to you when you were in one of the places where you were working? That's a great question. I guess I could say that my career path was quite nonlinear, and I'm sure a lot of people would say that about theirs. Right. So as I mentioned, I, I had a finance background, so analysis and data was always part of what I was doing. But data science, not, not so much. So basically, my last job um, while I was still living in New York, I joined an investment manager that actually differentiated itself through the use of data science and technology. And what they were really uh, focused on is high-frequency trading that was executed by automation and not necessarily finance uh, or economists. And so that was their approach to the market. And they were quite successful and ended up being one of the largest players in that field. And when they really excelled at what they were doing, they started thinking about other indus industries where those differentiators would be relevant. And obviously, insurance is, is that peer to finance and in that next wave of transformation. So they spun out a business to focus on bringing automation, technology, and data science to the insurance industry using that prior expertise in the financial markets. And I joined that team pretty early on to help with that. And I kind of fell into really running some of the data science efforts and specifically looking at productionized data science for wider use cases across the insurance industry. And we worked with leading insurers, reinsurers, and MGAs to do so. And it was a phenomenal experience because I was really there from the get-go. So I learned quickly what works, what doesn't work, what are the challenges, and so on. And now I'm looking forward to bringing all of that to emerging markets. So there's so much to unpack there. And I want to dig a little bit deeper. And I want to use some of my own experiences to kind of inform what you've done as well. So high frequency trading, algorithmic trading, all the back testing that's necessary, all the data accumulation, the data cleaning, all of the machine learning that gets done to build algorithms. And then, like you said, it doesn't necessarily ignore financial analysis. It incorporates it in a way that is structured and automated. And 
I now deal, I have an entire podcast based on InsurTech and I talk to a lot of people in the insurance space, right? So very similar to what you're doing in this transition. And I talk to them a lot about how if you can use all of the principles that we used in building out our algorithmic trading business, which is endemic to the high frequency trading business, right? And if you apply the stuff that you learned there to your insurance and then use real time data the same way you were doing when you were doing HFT, and build a parametric business around that, it's almost like a trading business in insurance. Is that fair? It sounds great, but it's a little bit too good to be true. And I will tell you the two key differences between the two industries. Awesome. I would say that when it comes to trading in the financial markets, there is a lot of data out there in terms of just frequency and availability that's publicly available and that by definition is accurate. So even if you track a, a stock price on a daily basis over the year, you'll have 365 data points on that stock and so on. So there is not a lot of data privacy or availability or accuracy issues in that. The other thing is that financial markets are highly sentiment driven, right? There's like this whole investor psychology behind it. So yes. you can really leverage that to do, do projections and predictions in this space. And you know, for example, Bloomberg does this really well, where over decades, they've built out these sentiment analyses using machine learning and scraping whatever they're seeing in the media to kind of give these predictions and projections, because again, that's publicly available. Right. But now when you come to the insurance industry, it is very different. First of all, insurance data is not publicly available. It's usually PII data about the insured and so on. So these are all privately held data points that individuals, insurers or brokers have and that you can avail on the web. And even then, it's not high frequency. Usually you renew a policy every 12 months and some of them might never have claims. So you don't really have that many data points in a single year. You need to wait up to a decade to have a sizable data set and portfolio that you can really analyze in, in, in an intelligible way. So those are some of the key differences between the two industries when it comes to being able to use data in order to do anything further upstream. So I would need to find, if I wanted to apply the things that I learned, and that was a great answer, by the way, like really great. And if I wanted to apply the things that are learned in trading, and I love this idea you just talked about sentiment, right? I think these are things that people who aren't involved in high-frequency trading and algorithmic trading don't understand necessarily how traders will say, here's the data history of how a stock has traded, here's how I think it's going to trade going forward, and here's the sentiment overlaid on top of all of that back-tested data to then overly inform how the stock should trade depending on price movements and sentiment data and their entire trading strategies built around the combination of those things, which is really interesting. And if I can find a way to get some part of the insurance industry that has real-time data, that's frequent and publicly available, then I may be able to write insurance policies around that as long as it meets those criteria. Does that make more sense? It definitely makes more sense. The question is, how long will it take for us to actually be able to get there? And the first step to that, to your point, is going to be to create processes that actually capture this type of data over long periods of time in order to be able to do something with that data. And I think there's still a gap in terms of 
commitment to that foundation because it's 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 a cost, right? You're not going to have much value from the data engineering that needs to happen first. And I think a lot of organizations are very impatient and they just want to prove out data science and AI immediately without having done the grunt work first. Again, another great point, right, is that there is this sense of I want this information yesterday, even though it's not possible to have it. Can you talk about some of the other challenges that exist in data science just in general, and then maybe talk more specifically about insurance in more detail? Absolutely. I think it's quite interesting to me how there is a lot of hype in this space and all of these organizations really want to leverage data science and AI, but then they're surprised when they can't. And this is really happening on a mass scale. So there's a lot of reasons, like I mentioned, why that's the case. But I think I would single out three key reasons that I've observed personally. Okay. So one of the, the, the ones we just discussed was data availability and quality. The other one is really adapting businesses to actually leverage data science. And I don't think that transformation has been fully completed yet either. And then the third one would just be regulation and data privacy laws. So if I were to expand on the first one in terms of the data availability and quality for the insurance industry specifically, mm -hmm. another thing that I find quite interesting is how we are trying to use innovative, differentiated, non-traditional data sets to help us in the insurance lifecycle. But we again haven't really had the time to prove out that that data actually is useful in the way that we're trying to use it. So an illustrative example, there has been a boom in terms of IoT technology and wearables. And there's this whole, like a lot of insurers are trying to say, hey, you guys, track your steps, live a healthy lifestyle, and you'll get um, a discount on your insurance premium, right. for example. Right. And so now all of these people are doing so. But I am not sure whether this is the right way to think about it. So, for example, tracking the number of steps might actually not materially improve one's health. It could actually have the opposite effect because an individual who walks more might think, he has a license to eat more because right. he is fitter right. and then overestimate the extent to which this data is actually correctly underwriting this risk profile. So it could have the opposite effect. And I think time will show over, like I said, a couple of years as to whether this, this hypothesis of mine is actually accurate or not. What do you think about the telematic space, right? So devices or some kind of measurement for cars, which have been around for a long time. There should be a bunch of data out there about that. And I know you're not in the, in the motor insurance business, but just thinking about all of the data that you have, so you can tell the way maybe somebody pumps the brakes or hits the gas or slows down or speeds up to see if they potentially are gonna get into an accident in real time. Is that something that people are working on as well and gathering the right amount of data to do, or is that just another Michael Pipe dream? So that's a great question. The interesting thing that I was looking at earlier today is some stats around innovation and insurance specifically. Okay. And I found a survey that says that in 2010, there was maybe 20 patents filed. And then in 2020, a decade later, there were 693. So the incre increase in just patents filed for data science innovation in this space has been tremendous. And most of these patents filed were in the space of motor insurance and technology to support 
underwriting and pricing of motor policies. So that's definitely a space that's seen as having most potential for this type of innovation. Again, the jury's out in terms of what this is going to prove out long term. I don't think we've been doing this for enough years to be able to make those conclusions just yet, because as I mentioned previously, insurance is a long-term business. It, right. it can take up to a decade to really fully understand the lifetime value of a specific risk. However, there is still benefits to automating some of these aspects. So for example, a lot of insurers are actually using teleimaging and drones to assess damage. You no longer have to have someone come and inspect the car or send the car somewhere for damage estimates. You can now use highly sophisticated image recognition tools that help you do that. And obviously that's that's a tremendous leap com compared to where we were before. Sure, like photogrammetry gives you a great amount of data when it comes to f photographing car damage or building damage, yeah? Absolutely, and what we're looking into at Democrats is having these before and after images. If you capture the before images of your car and then you have any type of accident or damage to it, we can actually use technology to match those two images and discern the differences to estimate the damage. And I think that will obviously help with the operational aspects of, of servicing a policy tremendously. So you talked about some innovative data sources and some innovative uses of the data to sort of calculate stuff that's related to insurance. Can you give me some other, I don't know, what would you call them, cool use cases, like where there is data science being used across the value chain in ways that people may not think is happening. Absolutely. So I'll give you a couple use cases that are my personal favorites. Okay. Um, so <laughs> this might be subjective because there's, there's just so many out there, but I'll tell you my favorite. I love it. Which will give you a lot of insight about me and my personality as well. One of the use cases that I have experience with was scraping non-traditional data sets and data sources to be used for insurance underwriting. Okay. So imagine mm -hmm. if you are trying to underwrite restaurants and you're actually scraping websites that give you customer and diner views on those restaurants. So you go onto Yelp or you go onto OpenTable right. and you create algorithms that are actually looking for, for risk classification words that then can actually be automatically fueled into the underwriting algorithm. So let's say you go to a restaurant and you leave a review as a diner saying, I really enjoyed my flaming cocktail. The algorithm will pick up the fact that this place actually has flaming cocktails, which could be a high hazard, and will actually use it as input into the underwriting model, where this would traditionally not be something that would be captured by underwriting questions. Wow, what else? So you're really into food. This is what you're telling me. Either into food or these cocktails, one or the other. <laughs> well, okay, we'll leave that for the listeners to figure out. I will leave it at that. Okay. A less fun one, but one that I find tremendously useful for insurers is being able to do claims modeling and longer term projections of your claims versus aggregate market rates. And again, the dependency is on having a public data set that actually aggregates the market and can give you some, some benchmarks. But the idea here is having a real time claims projection model that at every, every policy and with every day tells you how you're trending versus your peers in that specific market 
and whether if that trend continues, there is reason for concern so that you can course correct before it's too late. So you can change your underwriting policies or your market segments or things like that before it's too late and your claims ratio is super high and not manageable and you actually have to sell off that book of business. So when I first started doing my InsureTech podcast, everyone told me that insurance wasn't interesting or sexy. This sounds so fascinating to me. And I can tell in your voice, like it sounds like it's fun for you, no? It's super fun. It's, you, I think what I really enjoy about it is that you can get really, really creative. Yeah. And it's just, uh, it's a new space, especially in emerging markets. So there's so much to be done that can add value to the entire ecosystem. And I'm just excited to be part of it, to be honest. How do you perceive emerging markets? In other words, how is that opportunity different in the use of data different in emerging markets than it might be in a more mature market like the United States or, or continental Europe? That's a great question. And I think the jury is still out because I am fairly new to these markets, but I'll tell you my early observations. Go for it. First observation is that most of the insurers that we talk to are still kind of at the early stages of automation and technology to begin with. So we're moving them away from highly manual brick and mortar practices to basic automation and technology, even something as simple as being able to sell through your website which is super common in all other industries, e-commerce, finance, and so on, insurance is still trailing that. So the lift that we can help with in terms of improvements and even the lift in top line and bottom line is huge. And that's just very exciting to be in a market that's maybe a little bit less mature than the U.S. would already be in this space because you have much more impact. Right. The two other things that I'm observing and monitoring is data privacy laws. I think those are obviously a huge prerequisite, being able to do analytics and data science. The complication is that we work across 12 markets already and we're looking to grow across other emerging markets. And then you really have to understand the restrictions per market. Right. And that's a little bit more complicated than working in like a US where maybe the laws are stricter, but you have a population of 350 million plus that is actually subjected to the same data privacy laws. And so you only need like one or two lawyers max that you have to interact with. The third thing is, um, so Democrats was initially really focused on insuring microinsured populations and in emerging market segments. And by definition, those are usually higher volume and with higher volume comes more data points. So that excites me because then I can do much more of my data science based on that. And you're right. The regulatory environment, which is, again, a thing that I think most people don't understand about the insurance industry. And I know that in the United States, the, the insurance industry itself is regulated on a state-by-state -state basis, but it turns out that the states that are sort of contiguous to each other have similar regulations. But from a data privacy standpoint, you're right. The contiguous United States, 300 and something million people are all governed by the same data privacy laws. But if you go to the UAE and then go to other parts of the GCC and then go to Southeast Asia where there are seven or eight different countries and combined almost a billion people in those places, all the data privacy laws could be different. So just figuring out how to deal with that can get really, really difficult, particularly from a data accumulation standpoint, right? Absolutely. So I want to understand as well, because I read a lot about, you know, you talked about innovative types of data being used for insurance. How about the data that's just on your phone, right? I mean, a lot of people, not a lot of people, most people are carrying some kind of smartphone. They all have Mac IDs on them, right? So they're all 
individual IDs associated only with that piece of hardware. And the phone itself can tell you how often the phone gets paid, who you contact, how often you contact them, how often the phone gets dropped, like all of this data is there. Is that data also useful from your perspective in creating new types of insurance or, or just in being able to price insurance better? That's a great question. I have not seen uh, much use of that type of data in insurance yet. And again, a big dependency on individual users actually agreeing to share this type of data, which they deem very, very personal and private with insurers for underwriting purposes. Outside of what we've already discussed in terms of wearables and some of these apps that might actually track your behaviors and some, some health patterns. But again, you know, as always in insurance, there's this risk of anti-selection. Most people that sign up to be tracked are usually less of a risk anyway. Yeah, I mean, otherwise they wouldn't sign up for it, right? If you had like all these pre-existing conditions, it's just unlikely that you're gonna sign up for that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, it makes sense. Exactly. From a Democrat standpoint, how would you describe, and I, I know you've joined recently, but just from your perspective, how would you describe your philosophy and the firm's philosophy and its approach to this whole data science world? Okay, so I will tell you my early thinking because I am two months in and I'm sure this is going to evolve. But we had to put a stake in the ground and start somewhere and we look to evolve from there. My number one, I guess, commitment would be to kind of bring back the truth into the data science and AI world. I think there's a lot of hype out there and I want to make sure we're really truthful and transparent about what can and cannot be done. And finally enough, I was actually looking at some stats in this space. There's a study that was done in 2019, and it found that two-fifths of Europe's labeled AI startups that claim to use AI right. actually do not. And when they do, these AI use cases are actually quite basic, so they might be more analytics than AI. <laughs> so my first commitment is I don't want to be in those two-fifths. I don't want to be quoted in that way. I want to make sure we actually build in a space that's reasonable and where things are actually possible. I'm so happy that you said that. It's one of my biggest pet peeves, actually. This whole idea of being able to say, using artificial intelligence to do X, whatever X is. And I know for 100% surety that that company, because I know people there or whatever it is, that they're not doing that at all. And there's like a hamster running on a wheel that's actually doing that data analysis. And it has nothing to do with artificial intelligence. And to be fair, in my mind, I used to say, try to be funny, which maybe I succeeded, maybe I haven't. It's more artificial <laughs> and much less intelligent. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, as if we don't, sit ourselves down and we're honest with each other, we're not going to progress in this space. So um, I think that's kind of important. And that's one of my uh, early commitments. Beyond that, Go ahead. I did structure an early strategy and product roadmap for Democrats. And I really look at this data world in terms of five layers of complexity. Okay. As we've already mentioned before, the number one prerequisite to being able to do anything else upstream is actually having this data layer. Right. So I want to make sure that we have a single source of truth for all data on the Democrats platform that is accurate and that is real time so that we can do analysis on that data. The second layer is what I'm calling our data extracts and reporting layer. And these are just basic functionalities where we can tell our clients, 
here is access to your data whenever you need it. And we actually developed APIs for them to be able to leverage at any point that they need to so that they don't have the dependency on us having to put this data together and, and send it through, but they can avail it whenever is convenient for them and in whatever format that they need it in that moment. Then the third layer is what I'm calling our dashboards layer. And this is actually quite simple, but I think will be super powerful. Here I'm trying to build out dashboards that can tell our clients with a quick glance how their business is performing across, across key metrics and KPIs for the insurance industry. So for example, we're about to launch a production dashboard. And here you land on this dashboard and you can immediately tell, is your premium growing? Is your number of policies that you're binding on our platform growing? If the trend is green, you're doing good. If it's red, we should troubleshoot. The second dashboard is what I'm calling a retention and relationship management dashboard. And here we're really going to be looking at some of the intermediary relationships that are important to most insurers. Most insurers in the world distribute through brokers. And so those aspects and tracking those KPIs is really critical to the success of their business. So I want to be able to tell them, hey, these are your top five brokers that you really should focus on because they're bringing you most of your business, because they're incredibly profitable for you and so on. And then on the flip side, if there's brokers that are doing a lot of quoting, but very little binding, this is a relationship that you should revisit. And then the third uh, dashboard, which I think will be most fun for me, is going to be a user behavior analytics dashboard. And here we're really going to be looking at how the users are interacting with the platform and where some of the drop-offs are happening. So for example, if I have a customer that is actually going through the full journey of trying to buy a policy and then does not proceed with the payment, that maybe tells me that that insurance policy is too costly and we should revisit the price. And then we can do some A-B testing to really see how we can help our clients convert their business in the direction that they want it to go. Uh, the fourth layer would be our third-party data integrations. And what I'm trying to do here is really build out a data vendor ecosystem for different points of the value insurance chain. So what we're already launching in the UAE for motor insurance, insurance policies, for example, is that when a customer puts in their license plate number, I actually integrate with a data set that gives me all of the other necessary relevant information. It tells me what the car make is, what the year is, what the value of the car is, and so on, and helps me underwrite that policy much more accurately and much quicker. And it's much more convenient for that customer because they don't have to sit there and key in all of the information, some of which they might not even know themselves. And then my fifth and final layer of capabilities is the most advanced layer. This is where the data science and the artificial intelligence comes in. And some of this work will actually be more bespoke to specific customers and their use cases and their books of business that they want to transact in. But there's a, a couple of really cool use cases here that I'm working on that um, I hope to find partners for. Can you tell me what they are? Absolutely. In this space, I want to make sure that we are complementing our automation platform and the capabilities there. And at Democrats, our core focus is really in the distribution and sales verticals. We look to help insurers really grow their sales using our technology. And so I want to make sure that the analytic plat uh, analytics uh, capabilities are aligned with that. 
So one of the key focus areas for me, besides what I just mentioned in terms of pre-populated submissions, would also be looking at pre-priced and smart upsell and cross-sell triggers. So what I'm thinking in this space is if the insurer has a book of business with customers that actually have more than just one coverage with them, let's say they have health insurance and they have motor insurance, we can do analysis on that book of business and kind of look at the correlation between those two coverages and what are the demographics of those customers that actually tend to have more than one coverage. Then we can take that back to another book of business and actually recommend this upsell and cross-sell to customers because they fall within a similar demographic that we think is giving a signal for that transaction. And we can automatically trigger these offerings through our system. So the customer only needs to click and pay and they are basically covered in additional ways, some ways that they might actually not have even considered they need it. It sounds to me, I mean, that was amazing, right? And it sounds to me like you don't go to work every day. It sounds like you go to fun every day. I could just tell by the tone in your voice that this stuff sounds like it's a ton of fun for you. It's a ton of fun. It's a great space to be in. It sounds like it. I want to know how do you build out, like, actually, I want to back up for a second. Do you get special joy about building things from scratch? Because before you arrived, right, there wasn't much of a data science team or a data engineering team. Is that fair? And do you love that sort of blank slate and saying, I'm going to build this whole thing out now? Is that fun for you? The answer is absolutely. But the one correction is, although there was not much built out in terms of data science capabilities at Democrats, the fact that there was a lot built out in the automation space is really helping me do my work because I basically already have some of that data. I have some of the use cases. I have some of the clients. And that's much, much easier than starting from complete scratch. It helps me anchor my work and then kind of grow and scale from there. And the last thing I'll ask you is, how do you build out the necessary ML ops and data engineering infrastructure as well? That's a great question. So that's more of an engineering partnership with my product and engineering teams. So we have engineers that kind of help us with both sets of capabilities that we work with. And obviously, there's so much dependency across both worlds, and we're trying to integrate them as much as possible. So this doesn't even look like a different offering to the end client. In terms of uh, the team that's actually going to be the, doing the technical execution for me, the way I again think about this is just the diversity of this world. A lot of people think, well, you know, you're a mathematician and you're a data scientist, so you can do anything within this space. And I just don't believe that that's fully accurate because I think it really depends on the use case. So if I want to do innovation in pricing or underwriting, I actually need an actuarial data scientist to help me with that because they're going to be best suited to do so. If I want to scrape documents or the web and, and create really cool algorithms that capture words for me, then I need someone who has natural language processing expertise and is a machine learning data scientist and so on. So really, you want to make sure for this to be successful that you first identify the use case and then you match it with the right technique in terms of the data scientist that's actually executing on the technical part of it. Okay, look, that was awesome. I'm going to let you go. I really want to thank you for doing this. Tanya Magash, the Chief Data and Analytics Officer at Democrats. That was awesome. Thank you. I really enjoyed our chat.